This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, we do welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we discuss computing, new technology, the internet, uh, everything that matters. Tonight on the show, we're joined by uh, Mr. Dan Salmon. Hello. And we're also joined by uh, Simon Leo Brown. How are you? As heard earlier. Very well. As heard earlier. Uh, it's getting to that time of year where dancing is a must. Uh, people are dusting off their Cuban heels right now as we speak. Uh, if you like to dance with abandon, no lights, no lycra uh, might actually be your thing. Uh, we speak to Melbourne founder uh, Alice Ben on why it's better with the lights off, uh, I'm told. Uh, we're also going to hear from roving bite reporter who's been roving all December, Laura Summers, uh, who spoke to Cap Watkins uh, of BuzzFeed. Uh, they speak all things design. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, but first, we're going to take a look at what's making news in technology, uh, both here and around the world. Um, there's been a few hacks uh, in recent times. Uh, there's been a hack to a Hong Kong-based toy maker. Uh, what's going on here, Simon? VTech found out that they had been hacked when they were contacted by Motherboard, who are the uh, the tech blog, I guess, of Vice. Vice had found out that VTech had been hacked when the hacker contacted them and said, oh, I've hacked VTech. Who are VTech? They make really ugly tablets and various other internet-connected devices for kids. And it's kind of like an Etch-a-Sketch um, yeah, meets an it really iPad. Is. It <laughs> yeah. really is. And on this uh, Etch-a-Sketch, you can do things like chat, you can take photos, you uh, need a password, uh, and you have all of this data held by this company from Hong Kong who has been hacked. So... The damage, apparently it's the fourth largest data breach, consumer data breach, uh, that we know of. The damage is uh, f- nearly 5 million parents, 4.85 million parents, and 6.3 million kids around the world have had their accounts breached. Wow. Uh, now, the kids... Uh, Thankfully, we only know their first names. Unfortunately, we also know which parents' accounts that they're linked to, so we actually do know their full names and where they live. Uh, uh, when I say we, most, in fact, almost nobody does because the hacker is seems to be playing nice and isn't releasing the data to anybody. Uh, seems quite concerned that he was be able to get in himself. There's also photos. Uh, obviously, most of the... Uh, parents and children affected are from the major Western industrial nations, but uh, Australia can claim 18,000 parents and 23,000 children among the affected. So it's not small and it does have a big impact, I would say, on the Christmas shopping list for lots of people who are thinking about buying this sort of thing because their parent, kids probably really need something like this. So probably the blot pool or something for the backyard is a better choice this year. I would <laughs> say, yeah, totally, the slip and slide. Go for slip and slide. That, that would be the way to go. Uh, if you were to pay for a slip and slide, you probably won't be using Apple Pay uh, anytime soon uh, <laughs> in Australia, unfortunately. Uh, there has been a, a bit of a, a kerfuffle uh, around Apple Pay uh, in Australia. Um, there's been accusations levelled at the big four banks 
banks that they have been, in fact, anti-competitive in not supporting the introduction of Apple Pay uh, into Australia. Uh, if you catch up on some of the news around this, uh, there is a bit of a, a I guess, a, um, a snafu where uh, the banks have uh, been reluctant to meet Apple Pay uh, in supporting the introduction of this. Uh, the only, I guess, credit card uh, that has been um, able to be uh, launched with Apple Pay uh, has high merchant fees, which has in turn um, uh, encouraged uh, businesses to not actually support it as well because they don't want to lose um, their profits. So it's this interesting triangle of... Um, of uh, a supply with innovation, uh, the people who've got the customer base and the businesses that could potentially uh, work between the two, uh, and nobody kind of really wants to budge, uh, which is a real shame. Uh, if you do have one of the major credit cards, uh, you are in a good um, situation, but apparently that's only one-fifth of credit card holders anyway, so... It's not, uh, it's not many of us. Uh, I think one of the interesting things is um, one of the commentators talking about uh, the actual mobile solution. Um, one of the major banks actually said, uh, we don't need Apple Pay uh, because the banks themselves are actually producing their own uh, version of Apple Pay, which is always great. We do support a, a backyard done-in-the-shed um, solution. By the largest corporations in the country. <laughs> By the largest corporations in the country. Uh, it was actually described as sticking a cut-down version of a credit card to the back of the phone. Um, oh, yes, that you can do that. Mm. Yes. Which yes. is, uh, you can order one of those through one of the apps of the major banks. Which is excellent, um, if it's 2007, uh, which it's not. I, I'm wondering whether Apple Pay would have been as disruptive here as it has been in other markets, considering Australians have already jumped on electronic payment solutions, whereas cash still rules in a lot of other societies that Apple are going for. But be interesting to see. Yeah, it's more so you'd like to see these things given a chance and to actually um, sink or swim based on its merits rather than uh, everybody kind of um, um, locking step and making it hard for... Uh, you know, I've got no love for, uh, for, the, for for big business per se, but you want to see some of these things, um, yeah, work, work on their merits rather than um, rather than being blocked, which is, uh, which is a real shame. Uh, one thing that's not a shame is uh, a very generous move from uh, one of the one of the large tech founders. Um, Dan, can you tell us what's going on here? Well, um, yeah. So, what, by when we say one of the largest tech founders, arguably the largest, um, uh, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg became a father in the last couple of days, and as a uh, generous, um, I suppose, gesture towards you know his newborn child and the and the future planet on which he is going to be living, he and his wife Priscilla Chan have uh, donated. Donated 99% of their Facebook shares to charities that are yet to be announced. I think, but have promised to donate over the course of their lifetimes. Yeah, it's 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 um, there are a lot of caveats in there that they haven't really. But what one thing that um I noticed because when someone told me about this, oh, they, it was just one of, like in conversation at work. My, oh, Mark Zuckerberg is you know going to donate 99% of his Facebook shares to charity. I'm like. I didn't know you could commodify shares on Facebook. Like, my, that was where my mind went first was how, like, the actual sharing of mm. posts and data, which is probably more to do well, with my brain than it does in I anything know, else. But yeah. Because this just struck me as the world's most desperate attempts to get likes on a Facebook photo of your newborn baby. <laughs> <laughs> I would give away $45 billion. <laughs> <laughs> 
for you know what was it seven hundred and something thousand likes something like that have, have you have you read those articles where it gives you the estimate of the cost to raise a child over a lifetime and you know it's uh, I think <laughs> about a million dollars five billion yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's a that's an expensive child but um, congratulations to them and and it is a great gesture uh, there's no point in sitting on all of that cash like like Scrooge McDuck so uh, is it, it is a nice thing it's it's nice it's nice seeing when and it is generally you know very rich tech entrepreneurs you know you look at Bill Gates and his malaria crusade and various other ones that have the kind of largesse to do that and it's nice to see yeah i i guess once it once you have so much then it doesn't actually mean anything to you when you have uh, stupid <laughs> amounts of money when you have stupid stupid amounts of money it's okay to give it away well he couldn't get the tesla into the garage anymore so which, which tesla yeah, yeah which tesla uh, another thing that's interesting, uh, there's been a bit of a problem down at the Bureau of uh, Meteorology, uh, a bit of a compromise, I understand. There has been. We, we were speaking about um, data breaches earlier on, and uh, this is actually, a pro- in the words of an unnamed source at the Bureau of Meteorology, a massive cyber attack. Now, you, my first, first thought was Bureau of Meteorology, okay, so their website might not work and the weather might be actually more wrong than it normally is. But... The BOM has one of the largest supercomputers in the Australian government, of, of all Australian government departments. And because, you know, they are largely interlinked, it could mean the compromising of a large amount of data. Um, the, the BOM at the moment is being very tight-lipped about what the effects are and whether it's even happened or not, as, you know, government departments and security breaches generally go. It's China, they said. They do say it's China. Well, well no, an, unnamed an, an, an unnamed source just said it's China. Full props okay. to Chris Ullman for getting this yarn because all day the rest of the media has just been going, well, they told this guy that it's happened and nobody else has been able to confirm or deny anything <laughs> at all. A lot like what we're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting... Um, that the you know the motivation was seen to be either you know strategic or commercial i mean the, one of the big things that the bomb does is aviation and they run you know that basically the reason the bomb is so big is because of aviation and they are closely inter- interlinked with you know the aviation industry around australia so who knows i'm just going to speculate that that's what it's about it must have been very confusing for uh, john howard and tony abbott to see somebody at the abc pointing the finger at china mm. <laughs> it must have been a, a few wrinkled brows there well, apparently the, the attacks have been traced to a chinese army building in shanghai so we'll leave that there and let people think of what they it could cost hundreds of millions of dollars to fix is what they're saying that is interesting. Um, something that probably also did cost hundreds of millions of dollars is uh, drone delivery service. Uh, we've spoken to, um, over the past couple of years, a number of uh, drone delivery uh, concepts, uh, ideas and startups, and Amazon is uh, expected to be one of the major players in that space, um, if they're not already. Uh, we do have some audio now mm. of a new drone delivery service. Simon, what's happening with this one? Well, I think a few million of those hundreds of millions of dollars probably went to paying Jeremy Clarkson to oh. do this uh, spruik, which is from a new video uh, explaining how the service is going to work. And the poor thing, but what's the point? Because all it will hear is blah, 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 Stuarts, blah, blah, Stuarts, blah. Much better to behave like a rational human being. Find your tablet and place an order with Amazon for a pair of Puma Evo Power Firm Ground soccer shoes and have them delivered in 30 minutes or less. And in a location not too far away, a miracle of modern technology is dispatched. 
It's an Amazon drone, and after rising vertically like a helicopter to nearly 400 feet, this amazing hybrid design assumes a horizontal orientation and becomes a streamlined and fast airplane. In time, there'll be a whole family of Amazon drones, different designs for different environments. This one can fly for 15 miles. So uh, I think if anything's going to drop on your head, uh, the idea that Jeremy Clarkson has dropped something on your head in the backyard w- would not be unusual. I feel like something's dropped on my head. I actually feel dumber for having listened to that. I mean, yeah, I know. And it's What's with the Benny Hill soundtrack well? As well? yeah, I, it, it's, it's... It's appropriate for so, Jeremy Clarkson. So what, what we didn't hear is that the... Uh, in, in the near future, the premise of the video is in the near future, your, your daughter has uh, had her soccer shoe eaten by a, a dog, by the family dog, and oh. you need to get a new pair of these soccer shoes by the time you go to the game. Amazon drone, you buy it on Amazon, it comes off the conveyor belt, it falls onto a drone, the drone lifts into the sky, zooms through the suburbs, mm. miraculously escapes being shot down by the next-door neighbours who also want the shoes, and lands in your backyard on top of the big A that you stick in your backyard, which yeah. assumes that mm-hmm. you have a backyard mm-hmm. so you can see the sort of, you yep. uh, know, work well in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, We'll, we'll land. They did that with Jaffles, don't you remember? But, yes. <laughs> that was decidedly less low tech, less high tech. So uh, apparently this is automated. Apparently the uh, the drones are all fitted with uh, identify and avoid technology mm. uh, so that they don't run into, uh, I think it's a, a hot air balloon, which mm. I think it which, but must be a fairly easy thing to avoid if, you, if that's all you've got to worry about. But um, look, yes... We can see that from this, they're actually pretty serious and it will happen because this wasn't a 3D animation that they were showing. This was a drone delivering something, even perhaps not in, in a real-life scenario, but it was a, it was a real-life drone doing a real-life delivery of some form or another. So we can... Um, we can assume that we're going to see this being rolled out at least to places like LA, I'm assuming, would be a, a prime candidate in the next few years and other places where there are strict laws on crossbows. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it is uh, uh, important of, of the brave new world we will inhabit. <laughs> We will keep you up to date on that one. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple I. Hey, if you do like to dance uh, and everybody likes to shake it a little bit, there is a really good way to do it. Um, I've been curious about this for a little time, so it's very nice to have uh, the founder of No Lights, No Lycra, uh, Alice Ben, in the studio with us tonight. Hi, Alice. How's it going? Hi, I'm good. So um, I have to ask first up, why, why is it better with the lights off? Why are things better with the lights off? Well, things are always better with the lights off, but uh, particularly when you're dancing because you don't have to worry about what you look like. And we all dance best when we're just dancing for ourselves, dancing without worrying about what you look like, without worrying about looking cool, just responding to the music and going crazy. 
I do remember uh, when I first started like dancing in public at maybe like Blue Lights at like uh, Eltham Roller Rink or something like that. Awesome. Uh, we were very self-conscious. Um, there oh, were some yeah. really awkward moves, like whether you whether you kind of like met a special girl that night or something like that. It was all depending on whether you had the right moves. So the idea that it doesn't matter and you can just kind of shake it um, is a really good thing. Is there like a particular demographic that really goes for this or is it, it got broad appeal for everyone? Or It's no lights is for everyone. We've got a really broad spectrum of people that come along um we've got some little kids that come every week and a couple of 75 year old women who are regulars have been coming for a few years so yeah everyone anyone's welcome i've been tracking this spread basically based on uh hearing a regional radio station reports on it and seeing sort of suburban newspapers around the country. So each time it appears, they're like, what is this? This is fantastic. (laughs) How much of that spread has been sort of orchestrated by uh, you guys and how much of it has just been people hearing about it and just going for it? Um, It's been pretty much an organic... um sort of spread really Heidi um, Barrett who started No Lights With Me and myself started it about six years ago in Fitzroy um, and we just started it because we wanted somewhere to dance we wanted to turn the lights off and go crazy in a hall um, invited a few friends along and then the next week you know everybody bought one friend and it just grew um, and then a friend of mine moved to New York um, who'd been coming you know, every week over summer and she moved over to Brooklyn, took it there and that was the beginning of the spread. It just grew through word of mouth. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one thing, we, I've, I've, we've brought you on for a, our tech show and I do love dancing, but there is a, there is a technical uh, aspect to what you do. Um, you've, you've built an app or you've designed an app. We have. We've designed and built an app um just recently we've collaborated with uh, vic health which has been great um to build an app called dance break which takes over your phone once a day and plays one track for you at a random time gets you up off your away from your desk um take a break and take five minutes out to shake it and get loose get physical did, did you approach those guys or did Vic Health come to you and kind of go, we like what you're doing, we want to work with you or...? Uh, it was... We applied for a funding round, um, an innovation challenge that they put out at the beginning of the year and, um, yeah, it was quite an extensive sort of grant process which we went through with them. They've been amazing, great organisation to be sort of paired up with, so, yeah. Top, top three tracks for Daniel Andrews to be dancing at, at his desk. Any, any takers? Well, <laughs> you know, you know, I can tell. No. Uh, Favourite track of mine, Mark Morrison, Return of the Mac. Uh, there'd, be a, there'd be a poignancy for a politician to be playing that, especially if, like if you, if you kind of got re-elected or something like that, that would be amazing. Particularly if your surname began with Mac or Mick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who has, so that, I'm not sure. No. Uh, so w- w- where did the insight for that come from in, the, in that it's hard for people who, who work a lot sitting down to get up and do something and to stretch and to kind of get physical? Or Yeah, so No Lights has always just been about trying to get as many people up and dancing as possible and this is just a really great way to um, connect with as many people as possible wherever they are. It's hard for people to, you know, attend the regular classes. So... Um, 
this is just five minutes of your day, hassle-free, it engages with you, you don't even have to remember to do it, and, yeah, it's a great way to keep fit and get a bit of joy in your life. Do you need to be paying attention to your phone when it, like, does it buzz and say, oh, song's coming, you better get ready, or is it just like, ah, we've got to get up? No, so it sends you a 30-minute warning, a notification, and then a two-minute warning and a 30-second warning. So you get lots of buzzes. (laughs) And you can choose to turn the app off if you've got a, you know, a big meeting happening that day and you really don't want to be interrupted. You can choose to disable it for the day. Do, do they happen in, in, at the same interval? So, like, if you've, if you've got a number of people in your office, for example, and everyone's signed up, does everyone all of a sudden just stand up jumping and dancing around at the same time? We hope so. That's the aim. So... <laughs> Yeah, the idea is that it takes over your phone once a day and then after the track's played, it shows you a map with the number of people that's just that have just danced to it and it gives you their location. So you can see all the people around the world that have just danced with you to that song at that moment. How did you find the process of, of working on an app? Um, as, a, as a, I guess, a kind of an entrepreneur and, and someone who likes sort of bring people together with good ideas, was it different to kind of sit down and be very disciplined and kind of have a focus and, and sort of push aside ideas? And how did you find that personally? Yeah, I mean, it's a very steep learning curve for us. I've never built an app before or done anything to do with apps. But, um, yeah, so I think um, that has been a big part of it. You know, you start off with a, a really grand idea and, you know, we had this idea that it would actually take over your phone and interrupt a phone call and the developers sort of told us, well, that's not, you know, legal or possible. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a, there's a few compromises we've had to make along the way and also obviously financially, you know, you've always got to work within certain limitations. Sure. So, um, but pretty much it does what we what we want it to do. So we're pretty happy. You've chosen SoundCloud as your music platform of choice. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, the reason we've chosen SoundCloud is that it was the only platform we could find that people didn't have to be signed up to or logged into to access via the app. So um, it's a it's a new platform for No Lights. Um, we're pretty excited about it actually because uh, we get to access a whole lot of new music, a lot of uh, remixes of old classic tracks that we've played at No Lights to death, really. So it's an opportunity for us to, yeah, find some new stuff. I heard someone refer to the current generation of electronic musicians as the Ableton slash SoundCloud generation. So there you go. You're on point at the moment. Brilliant. <laughs> Is there a, a particular style of music that works very well for dancing in the dark or dancing spontaneously at your desk or wherever you I think it? the success of No Lights is the range of music. So everybody says, you know, they love that they come to No Lights and every track is a surprise. The genre is a surprise, the tempo, everything changes with every track really and that's part of what keeps you um, keeps you energised and engaged with, um, yeah, with the concept. Do you have any plans to do anything with the intelligence that you pull out of the back of the app and what people are doing and where they're dancing and and to what and so forth? Yeah, we're definitely excited to, um, you know, work out who's using it and um, mainly to work out who's not using it really and then Mm. we can uh, figure out different ways to engage with audiences that aren't already um, using it or, yeah, engaging with no lights. Do you have a particular? Do you have a favourite? A uh, few favourite dance moves that you like to do when it's when it's dark. I'm well, a big I only kitchen do dancer, them in the dark, so, so I'd, okay. 
pretty, you know, I prefer to keep those private things. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pry. Don't no, pry. I'm, I'm a sort of a wave my arms around wildly and... Yeah, crazy dancer. One one of the things, because I I love the idea of no lights. I've not been yet, but I've got a lot of friends who go and have have invited me. My main kind of concern isn't about what people can see so much as my fear of elbowing people in the face. Is there a lot of that going on? Um, well, it's light enough so that you, you your eyes adjust so you don't bump into people. But generally people have a pretty good, you know, self-awareness, spatial awareness in that space. So I really should be working. Yeah. I should be working on that is what you're saying. A yeah. little maybe, yeah. yeah. No, you'll be fine. <laughs> It's a it's a great idea, and it's a it's a good thing that uh, the Victorian government is getting behind it and and supporting it with uh, with this grant. Uh, what would you like to see happen in twenty sixteen? If you could sort of add something to it or do something different for No Lights No Lycra. Um, oh, we really want to get schools engaged with the app. That's a big um, big plan for us. Yeah, we want to get as many teachers engaging with the app, playing it at a random time, getting the kids up away from their schoolwork and. Yeah, we think it's an important thing for kids to learn how to dance and get into their bodies and, yeah, find that comfortable place with movement. It is something that you can lose as you uh, as you grow up and it's important not to lose that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Freedom of movement and freedom of expression. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much for coming in. It's a great idea and uh, good to finally talk to you about the idea. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, where, can, where can people find the app? Um, you can get the app on... Uh, just the normal Apple store and mm-hmm. AirPlay if you've got an Android mm-hmm. um, or you can visit nlnldancebreak.com Strongly recommend that people do do that You're on Triple R listening to Bite Into It this week with Simon, Dan and Warren. It is our last show for the year uh, we were lucky enough to catch up with uh, one Cap Watkins at Web Directions in Sydney recently. Uh, Laura Summers was good enough to sit down with him and have a bit of a chat about uh, all things design, uh, the important things around getting uh, a good product ready, and how managers uh, can be involved or not involved in that. We're going to join the conversation with them and we'll be back to you to talk about that uh, shortly. So I'm here chatting to Kat Watkins, now lead of BuzzFeed, previously of many cool startups, um, whose name I may have all forgotten, but feel free to add them in. Uh, the last one was Etsy yeah, and cool. uh, Amazon stuff. So. That's right. And he gave the keynote speaker this morning about how to design teams and how to design all the things that aren't the actual design of your product. So talk a little bit about how you can apply design thinking outside of actual UI. What made you think you could do that? <laughs> uh, I didn't know I could do it. It was kind of an accident. So I've been a designer for a long time. Mm-hmm. A long time. Uh, not that long. And so I've been a designer for a few years, and I became a design manager uh, at Etsy. So it was like maybe three years ago at this point, four mm-hmm. years ago. And, you know, you start, like, at first you care a lot about the design. Like, as a manager, like, I think, as a design manager, you're first time, like, you've been responsible for the design this entire time, right, in your career, and yeah. now, like, you still feel that way, you still feel like your artifact is the work, right, yeah. you still feel like, yeah. whatever the people that I'm managing or producing is what I'm going to be judged on later. Yeah, that's but the value I add. You would think, right, yeah. but, like, that's actually not true, it's, like, mm. a mistake a lot of managers make, mm. is they continue to try to, like, kind of own the artifact that they no longer own by, because they've now become a manager, um, totally. and so I finally figured out that my, like, artifact was the people and the teams like it's not obviously like i give critique and i care and like i want to to, create a world where people are thinking holistically about 
the design and like mm. that it's cohesive and all mm. that stuff. And, I, and I'm there to be able to see everything from 10,000 feet and kind of connect people and make, make that happen. Yeah. Um, but the bigger part of my job is like people growth, career tracking, like helping people like achieve things they never achieved before, giving them hard problems to solve and like coaching them through those problems, right? Mm. Like both like design problems and their personal problems, right? Yeah, um, of course. It's funny, like, when you start to think about those things, like, as a designer, I started to, like, really kind of accidentally think about the design of those people and those teams. You should realize that all of it is a user experience problem. <laughs> Every single one of these things is, like, a real-life user experience problem, which is pretty lovely. It's kind of a great realization because now it's like, okay, well, how do I make this experience this person's having, like, the best experience possible? Yeah. Right? Like, how do I make it so that, like, yes, this team is difficult, is in a difficult place right now, mm. but how can we undo that? Like, how can we like work through this and come out the other side like better than we were before? Totally. Um, and so, and also like yeah. user experience, we actually have tools to tackle that, right? Like, right. if you stop thinking about it as like classic management and start thinking about it as like a user experience problem, yes. like we already have a bunch of tools to tackle it. Yep. And the um, design processes all apply. Like the same processes still apply. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when I was designing, like I, whenever you design something, I would always start by writing out like the problems we're trying to solve, like mm-hmm. the goals of the project, mm-hmm. and we still kind of come at all these things the same way, right? Mm-hmm. So we were trying to write up design leadership principles for the whole team so that we could like kind of measure ourselves against something more principled, right? We started to write them and it, like we kind of got into it and we were a little lost. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, what are we trying to get out of this? Like, what is like the goal at the end of this? Like, how would we measure success of this document? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, what yeah, does it yeah. mean? And that was really helpful um, yeah. to kind of define those things and like understand what we're trying to solve for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now what's interesting is, like, I'm in a position now, so I'm the VP of design at BuzzFeed, like, mm. and so now I'm in a role where I'm even more abstracted, where I'm, like, I'm managing managers, right? And, like, yeah. who are managing designers. Yeah. And so now, like, the problems I'm working on are no longer design team-specific, right? That's mm-hmm. like, some of it is, and I use the design team as my little Petri dish, a thing, we try new things with that team all the time, because they're it's a very resilient team, they're very open about these things, they understand that, like, yeah. we're going to iterate. Yeah. We try things on them, and then basically, like, roll that out to the rest of the org after we prove that it's good. Yeah, um, A right. good thing. And if it's a bad thing, we never tell anybody we did it. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, didn't happen. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's, it, but it's the same principles, but now it's, like, because I'm at this, I'm in this role at this level with other people at this level, like, so the further abstraction for you as a manager, like the more generic and like less design specific, the problems you're trying to solve. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, right. Definitely. And as you increase in abstraction, what does that mean? Your, your like output is like, how do you define success for yourself? That's a, that's a hard question. I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping no one ever asked me that in an annual oh. review. Uh, <laughs> happy, uh, happy people. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? It's like, and I'm still, I'm kind of struggling this a little bit. I've been thinking about it a lot because like it's, uh, managing managers is much harder than managing designers I found because yeah. like, with designers you can see. So if I help a designer, if I coach them through a project mm-hmm. and they come on this side and they have more skills than they have before and they created something more amazing than they've done before, like that's a thing I can see. So a few interesting things there. Uh, I do like the idea that designers look at the world and go, you know what, I'm going to do anything that I possibly can uh, until we run up against a problem or, or, or something. And even then, we're going to design our way through it or over it or around it. Um, the notion that 
Um, I think it's useful in that it has uh, a way of putting users at the centre. So there's always somebody that you're doing something for rather than just a, a job that you do or a process that you run or a system that you're a part of. You're always thinking about um, somebody at the end. Um, the fact that it has um, definite outcomes and a focus, so we have to deliver something. We're not just um, doing something for the sake of it. Um, and an interesting thought I, I guess I wanted to share with you guys was where can that kind of principle be applied elsewhere? What things are, are we doing or what things, that, what things are people doing that could benefit from having an end user and benefit from having a, a, a clear set of outcomes? Almost anything, really. I mean, if you think about just how you live your everyday life and how many systems have grown up out of you know necessity or haphazardly sort of just been slapped together out of what's been available. Or just doing what the last person did and they handed over to me. Yeah. So, I mean, mean, whole cities could be reimagined from a design point of view if you had that opportunity. The problem is, I guess, is that we don't and we do have to work within the confines of what we are working within. we, We have an environment that sort of does put constraints on us the same way as, I guess, managers do. It was interesting. I was I was catching a show the other day about um, the state of uh, well, it was to do with the environment and solar energy, and they were looking at Germany uh, in particular, where it's mandated that they have to find a way to make solar energy work at a particular price. So it basically um, uh, birthed this entire industry that was free from price constraints and and the economy effectively, and they're cranking it out. They're they're export. They're looking to export energy next year of solar energy, and uh, and and coal is kind of not a significant part of it. But um, I don't know. What, what would you what would you design if you could design anything and you weren't thinking about the constraints? Um, what's what's something that you look at and go, that's a that's a flaky process or that's a flaky idea? Melbourne's public transport system. <laughs> Good one, Dan. I, I I I don't know if I can better that. I mean, the one of the things that I've always noticed with design and you know, great considered design is an amazing thing. Whether you're talking about you know web or if you're talking about architecture, if you're talking about anything that comes under that very broad definition of design. A lot of the time, like you were saying, things are done haphazardly and it might be, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the track when people realise, oh, hold on, like we can't work this way anymore. But by that point, it's so far down the track that to undo those 10, 5, 10, 20 years of work mm. is almost prohibitively expensive or far too difficult. Mm. You look at something and um, I'm probably going to get this wrong but you look at the redesign of say and i'm speaking from an urban Mm. urban design point of view of paris back in the 1800s the only way that they were able to essentially knock the whole place down and start from beginning was that it wasn't particularly well built in the Mm. first place Mm -hmm. you couldn't do that with a city like sydney melbourne we're lucky because you know we've got things like the hoddle grid and Mm. you know everything's very north south sydney you just can't do something like that sure so there are constraints that you need to work within and if you're looking at something like web you know that you can design as much as you like. At some point, the money's going to run out. That's true. We might rejoin the conversation. ...with them and hear them discuss their design and like, like, oh, this person's building confidence, right? Or they are learning to talk about their work or whatever. Yeah. I can see like very directly what's happening. Yeah, with managers, totally. like because their artifact is the people, like yeah. the places that that work is happening is on a lot of a lot of times in a black box, right? So that manager has one-on-ones. I'm not in the one-on-ones. Like yeah. I don't know what's going on. If they had a bad one-on-one and they yeah. walk out, I can't know. There's no way for me to know for sure, and there's no way to give feedback. 
right? There's no way I can be like, hey, man, that, that seemed hard, right? Like, totally. we should talk about that. I will never know. Yeah. Um, so my artifact, I think, as I'm going forward, is, like, just creating a system that encourages those people and gives them the tools they need to do their jobs well and then offers them support when they need it. And also, I think a big part of that is, like, creating a culture of trust and acceptance of failure. Because this is the thing, yeah, right? If like, totally. If I can't see, if I'm blind, which mm-hmm. I am, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we just talked about, like, and they don't trust me mm-hmm. or they think that if they fail or something goes bad, like that something bad's going to happen. And, so, and you know, and instead of like, I'm going to support them, like they will never tell me, like I need yeah. them to talk yeah. to me. Right. And so my, like, I think the artifact is like, how much are we talking? Yeah. How much do we talk about failure? How much like are we learning? And that will be kind of how I'm measuring if yeah. I'm doing a good job or not. People need to be able to feel comfortable to self-report and yeah. feel comfortable to describe a situation that wasn't ideal or they, yep. they're not happy with the outcome or they're not happy with how yes. they responded. Yes. This is all soft people problems, right? So like emotions and it gets muddy and like, <laughs> but yeah, like it can be really, really tough to work out how to give negative feedback in a constructive way or to help someone like learn from an experience without feeling like it was the end of the world. Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of that is the, the second part of feeling it's not the end of the world is a lot about repetition mm-hmm. and a lot about frequency and mm-hmm. publicity of the failure. So at Etsy, we do these things called blameless postmortems. So when the site goes down uh, or something goes wrong, they set up a meeting. Everyone's invited. Anyone who wants to come can come to this meeting. But definitely the people who were involved. And they run through the facts of what happened Mm -hmm. and they document it and they talk about what we could remediate. And the assumption the entire time as you're going through this chain of events is that Mm -hmm. it was going to happen to somebody at some point in time. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened by sheer luck that it was this group of people that found this horrible bug and like took the site down, right? Mm. Like, um, and if you can go into these things and then they publish the results, they email them to everybody. Like we found the stuff, whatever. Um, yeah. and if you can start treating every single failure as like, it's a reframing, right? It's not a failure, right? It's like something yeah. went wrong. Yeah. It was going to go wrong no matter what, because we live in the perfect place. That's okay. And we're going to talk about it publicly and openly. And I think retrospectives are a great idea. Like we do that yeah. a lot. Like, uh, like at BuzzFeed, we started doing that. It's been really, really powerful to like get people in a room and just like talk through what's going on and everybody feels better and no one's pointing fingers and it's yeah. all okay. Yeah. Um, and I think the other part of it is just kind of like for managers in particular, being able to, and like negative feedback, I think, and particularly mm. actually with designers too, is to be able to reframe it as not, it's not negative, mm. right? It's like, yeah. you didn't. So that was Laura Summers uh, speaking to Cap Watkins. Uh, and there's some interesting things there around uh, failure. Um, I guess for anyone who's had a, a project fail or even just a small thing fail, uh, it's nice to hear that it's probably not such a bad thing. Um, there are a few things that I really liked out of that. Uh, the idea that uh, it was going to happen to somebody sometime. Uh, it just happened to happen to this group of people. Uh, that's really nice. Uh, I also like the idea of think of mistakes as reframing what you do, not a problem uh, as such, which is really interesting. Guys, have you ever had something fail catastrophically or even in a small way uh, on something you've worked on? I don't think there's anyone who hasn't. Um, and, you know, it, it comes down to that thing. You, unless, unless you're only going to learn if you do something wrong. No one, no one knows. The only way that you're ever going to start at the top is if you're digging a hole. And it's <laughs> one of my dad's personal favorites. And, and um, yeah, like that, that's how we, you know, it's refinement. It's building, standing on the shoulders of giants and, you know, learning from your mistakes. Exactly. Have you, uh, have you ha- ever had anything sort of go spectacularly sideways or, or sort of seen that and gone, that needs reframing? 
I've certainly had things go spectacularly sideways. Uh, and sometimes, in my experience, it is very difficult to stand back and go, well, you know, it's, it's at least I experienced that and it's saving somebody else from experience. So a lot of the time it's just like, it's oh, very, my God, it's so terrible. It's very painful in the centre. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, I feel... I understand the sentiment and in the long run you can definitely get there and I guess the idea that uh, that he's spooking is to move beyond into that space where you are learning quicker rather than wallowing in the moment of going that is really, that was bad. But I think, if I don't think you're ever going to completely remove that feeling where you're going, that was bad because... I think that's just natural to have that feeling. Yeah, it takes a certain kind of mindset to not take it badly or personally, particularly personally. And, you know, the number of people who, you know, throw throw everything in the corner as soon as the first kind of hurdle arrives, you know, a lot a lot of us would have a, a lot more interesting things done with our lives if, that was, if we kind of persevered, but you know, it's just how it goes. I do like the idea that if you're, if you're not breaking things or if you're not failing, you're, you're not really learning anything. And, and all the people out there that um, live by that, it's uh, actually a really good mantra. Um, very interesting. Uh, thank you to uh, Laura Summers and thank you to Cap Watkins. Uh, there was a lot of good stuff that came out of Web Direction, so uh, Laura's been working tirelessly on uh, whipping that into shape, uh, which is great. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. It's our last show of the year with Dan Simon and Warren. Hey, some of you are probably going to put up Christmas lights uh, if you haven't already. Uh, I do kind of like to have them. Uh, I had them up in my bedroom uh, for 12 months, um, which kind of cast this really pale green glow uh, over me. It was a little bit kind of like um, uh, cramps kind of vibe <laughs> in my bedroom, which was kind of nice. Did you not sleep at all? Apparently that kind of light's really bad for you. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I did have some moments. Mm. Thank you for, for prescribing that to me, uh, Dr. Salmon. Um, That's what I do. One of the reasons that Christmas lights are actually, uh, or another reason they're bad for you and for your house is they can actually cripple your Wi-Fi network or cause a lot of problems. Um, home wireless interference um, can be a real problem. And one of the reasons uh, Christmas lights can be uh, contributed to that is the electromagnetic interference that they present. Um, it's actually fairly typical of devices that have, um, I guess, cheap uh, cheap wiring and Christmas lights actually have a lot of uh, unshielded or uninsulated uh, wiring in them and there's obviously a lot of wiring so uh, one of the things you can do is uh, is buy better quality lights also just make sure that you don't have too much of it going on uh, and at least keep your Christmas lights a meter or two away from other electrical gear so don't put them next to your uh, your TV or your stereo or something like that maybe have your Christmas key uh, Christmas tree or Christmas lights in another corner um, good advice there Hey, there's uh, a couple of events that we would like to flag that are coming up uh, in December. Uh, what's going on with these guys? One, if you happen to be agile enough to get yourself to Sydney, then you can be part of a developers conference uh, that is on from the 10th to the 11th of December. Uh, Yow! conference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it says it typically it attracts developers that are serious about staying informed of the latest trends and using that knowledge to create innovative solutions. And it's got uh, a bunch of stuff going on. One thing that's taken uh, my eye is uh, a session being run called Software Faster from Months to Minutes. And that does talk about agile methods, continuous delivery and how software craftsmanship can speed up 
what you do. And so lots of stuff like that, lots of interesting things going on if you have the ability to get there. Dan. Uh, next week, the uh, Computer Human Interaction Special Interest Group, which uh, has the fantastic uh, acronym of Chi Sig or Chi Sig, is hosting um, OzChi or OzCHI 2015. Uh, it's a leading forum in Australia for the latest in human and computer interaction research, uh, bringing together a large range of international researchers, industry practitioners, academics, and students from all around Australia. Uh, attendees come from a broad range of backgrounds. We've got inter interface designers, UX practitioners, information architects, software engineers, information systems analysts, social scientists. Um, the theme of this year is being human and it's showcasing the opportunity for technology to contribute to humanity and our humanness. If you're uh, keen on going, we'll tweet out a link. It is happening at the University of Melbourne next uh, Wednesday. Oh, no, sorry, next Monday, December the 7th. Um, yeah, if you can uh, head to, uh, excuse me, we'll uh, tweet the links out to there and, uh, yeah, get involved. Hey, uh, thank you to everyone out there in Bite Into It land uh, for 2015. It's been uh, a great year um, talking to the people that we get to speak to and bringing stories from uh, around Melbourne, around Australia and around the world. Uh, we always enjoy hearing from you and uh, enjoy your contribution. Uh, it's our last show for the year. We will be back in February and we're going to be doing a bit of tinkering as well over summer. So uh, if you have any thoughts on things you'd like to hear more of, things you'd like to hear less of, uh, if you want to come on and talk to us about an amazing project that you've got, uh, we would love Love to hear from you. You can hit us up uh, on the Twitter account at Bite Into It, or also on our Facebook page, which is pretty easy to find. Uh, you can also drop us an email at Triple R as well. Um, thanks very much to Alice Glenn of No Lights No Lycra, and to Cap Watkins and Laura Summers for their chat uh, about all things design. Uh, guys, it's it's been a fun year. Um, it's been a pleasure working with uh, with the two of you and with everybody else on Bite Into It. Yeah, no, it's been heaps of fun, and you know. More Mark Morrison next year, I say. <laughs> more uh, Mark Morrison? I believe that. Yeah, look, I'm going to vote for no more Mark Morrison, <laughs> personally. Uh, but, um, yeah, look, it's been an absolute blast, guys. Um, you know, every, everyone in the team and listeners as well, you know, thank you very much for sticking with us and particularly uh, those of you who subscribe towards us. We're running out of time. Thank you very much for <laughs> this year. We'll catch you next year. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.